Thanks for tuning into the Refuge Church Sermon Podcast. It's our prayer that the Spirit would use God's Word to stir your affections for Christ during this time. While we're glad to provide this online content, please remember that it's not intended to replace commitment and connection within a local church family. Now, here's this week's message. Micah 6, starting in verse 6. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? In Matthew, if I can find it, then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say unto you, as you did to one of the least of these my brothers, you did to me. And finally in Acts. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. The grass withers and the flower fades. All right, three separate passages of Scripture, so you know that today is going to be full. Well, today's going to be full. I'm just letting you know that ahead of time. So kids, if you would like to go to Elevate, we're going to clear out some room in here, so we've got some room to breathe. We have Elevate, we also have EGC this morning, Elementary Gospel Community. So if kids would like to go there. And uh, for those of you wonderful human beings that are serving our children this morning, I'm going to try to, they're gone. <laughs> I appreciate you. We'll just finish with that. Uh, all right. Um, Annie Dillard, is anybody familiar with Annie Dillard? You know that name? Oh, you're not, my son. Raise his hand. I don't think he is. Annie, she was a poet. Uh, she's an author. She's sometimes referred to, uh, she's compared sometimes to David Thoreau, Henry David Thoreau. Thoreau, if you remember from, uh, from Dead Poet Society fame, was the man who wanted to go into the woods to be deliberate, to, to live deliberately and suck out the marrow of life. Does that, you remember him? Um, uh, 
Annie Dillard wrote from the perspective, in her most famous work, Pilgrim at Tinker Creek, she wrote from the perspective of living in a cabin in the woods and just observing life around her. She called this just the, uh, the constant goings on of nature throughout the seasons of the year. And she actually does a pretty magnificent job of, of drawing our attention to what she calls the holiness of nature. She doesn't use that necessarily in a religious term, but she calls this the holiness of nature. Uh, things that we all, always fail to see. She asks lots of good questions of science and philosophy and religion, um, but rather than letting us off the hook, like Thoreau kind of does, and sing holiness as this like, nature is beautiful and full of love and peace, uh, she notices some, some cruelty, some inefficiency of these creatures. And she seems to have an, a special focus on some of the cruelty of insects. She tells of her first encounter of seeing a giant water bug and what this thing does to a small frog. You ready? He was a very small frog with wide, dull eyes. And just as I looked at him, he slowly crumpled and began to sag. The spirit vanished from his eyes as if snuffed. His skin emptied and drooped. His very skull seemed to collapse and settle like a kicked tent. He was shrinking before my eyes like a deflating football. I watched the taut, glistening skin on his shoulders ruck and rumple and fall, and soon part of his skin, formless as a pricked balloon, lay in floating folds like bright scum on top of the water. It was a monstrous and terrifying thing. I gaped, bewildered and appalled. An oval shadow, this is the giant water bug, an oval shadow hung in the water behind the drained frog, and then the shadow glided away, and the frog skin, uh, the frog skin bag started to sink. Her perhaps most powerful critiques were saved for the rituals, for the mating rituals of the praying mantis, which, if you don't know, uh, where the female devours the male. Okay, no amens. Just let it be. The male, absorbed in the performance of his vital functions, holds the female in a tight embrace, but the wretch has no head, and he has no neck. He has hardly a body. The other, with her muzzle turned over her shoulder, continues very placidly to gnaw what remains of the gentle swain. And all the time, that masculine stump holding on firmly goes on with the business. I have seen it done with my own eyes and have not recovered from my astonishment. <laughs> Annie Diller doesn't necessarily give advice. She just records what she sees and refuses to fit it nice and neatly into the world that she was taught and rather sits in perplexed awe of the world that is. And she says this, any three-year-old can see how unsatisfactory and clumsy is this whole business of reproducing and dying by the billions. There is not a people in the world that behaves as badly as praying mantises. But wait, you say, there's no right and wrong in nature. Right and wrong is a human concept, precisely. We are moral creatures then in an amoral world. The universe that suckled us is a monster that does not care if we live or die, does not care if itself grinds to a halt. 
It is fixed and blind, a robot programmed to kill. We are free and seeing. We can only try to outwit it at every turn to save our skins. This is a little heavy for the last week of summer, isn't it? I think it's safe to say that Annie Dillard would probably never make it as a writer for Pixar. Um, Those who have ears. Uh, And you might actually, you might be asking, why in the world would you head down that path? Here's my question. What does make man different? What is, what is it in mankind that would even be aware of all of this? I'm willing to bet that no praying mantis has done research or observation on why they do what they do. Certainly not males. <laughs> and maybe at least, maybe at least the giant water bug gives us a new perspective on sucking all the marrow out of life. But what makes man moral in an amoral world. I I think this would seem an odd thing to evolve out of. What's kind of interesting is that it turns out that Annie Dillard did not, in fact, live in a cabin for a year. She noticed this from the sidewalk of her suburban home. Which makes the writing, I think, maybe even more impressive. This is all happening right under our noses. Even the domesticated praying mantises are like this. But also in the common knockabout Thoreau, wanting to live fully while his mom did his laundry every week. All right, I'm going to go ahead and play my cards here, okay? Today I'm talking about justice, and I am firmly convinced that without a God, we do not have justice. Without a creator, We don't have a concept of justice. There's all kinds of pitfalls and landmines we're going to walk through. Um, So just so you know, uh, I'm going to challenge you to listen closely this morning and ask questions. If you have, have, don't presume what I'm saying and especially what I'm not saying. If you've been here long, you know I'm going to tell you what I'm not saying. So don't presume what I'm saying or not saying. Um, And there's lots of nuances, lots of I don't mean this, but here's what I mean. Uh, coming at you, but I, but I want to start. I'm going I'm to hit it again. I believe that there is a God, and without God, we do not have a concept of justice. Now, we can't know that, but I think it's, necess- it's necessity that we have a God to know what is good and what is not good. The language of good, the language of ought that a humanist or an atheist would use, I'm, I'm convinced that's borrowed language. Um. So I believe that the world was created and that God breathed into mankind the breath of life and and bore that mankind was created to bear his image. That he created him, male and female, he created them. And in in bearing God's image, we have the ability to reason. We have the ability to see and know and evaluate and contemplate. We even have the ability to say, this is cruel. When God gave Adam a law to obey, he gave Adam the ability to look at something and say no to his impulses. Unlike the praying mantis, especially when those impulses may cause great harm. 
to you or to others. We have this distinction, which I think is the image, which is the imago Dei, the bearing the image of God, among the amoral rest of the world, amoral our terms, not the insect's terms, right? They have no concept of that. Uh, and we have the, the ability to see and know these things. God gave us the ability and the burden to see and do what is good and what is right and what is just amongst a world that operates on see the food, eat the food, even if that food is your mate, uh, or just survival of the fittest. I think God's existence and our reflection of that is essential for the idea of justice. Martin Luther King once said, the arc, of, uh, the arc of the world bends toward justice. The arc of the moral universe uh, is long, but it bends toward justice. He was not talking here just about the natural world, even the domesticated insects. He was talking from within a Christian worldview. I'm convinced there is a God. So I'm going to start with that and let that lay there. And then from there, we're talking about our practices of mission. Today we're going to talk about the church, the church's call to the ministries of justice. We talk about, uh, we talk about uh, compassion uh, and mercy and justice. So today we're going to primarily hit on the church's call to justice. So I want to give the foundations of justice in the world and in Scripture. Uh, and then I want to talk about Jesus and justice. And then I want to talk about the church and her initial. I don't... Application, we're gonna, I'm going to give you just a brief application, but we're going to take some time on this today, okay? So we're going to read from the Hebrew Scriptures, the words of Jesus, and the church. That's the full gamut, all right? Everybody good? Everybody down for it? You going to pay attention? All right, so stay with me. This first part is fun. Hebrew Scriptures, Prophet Micah gives this beautiful summary. He has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. All right, so much about the foundation of justice, the way God created it, uh, all of that. Um, and uh, I want to start really with this God as opposed to the other gods in ancient cosmology and the uniqueness of the God of the Bible and how that's played out in terms of justice. Then I'm going to give you a good definition of justice, which all of you are going to be like, yes, but... There's going to be more uh, so we understand what we're talking about because most of us are talking about different things when we talk about justice. Uh, and, then, and then we'll get to the New Testament. All right. Um, in the ancient world, we never actually meet the gods or the goddesses. We, they are written about. They are carried out in stories. We don't actually hear from them commandments. This is unique of the God of the Bible that actually makes himself known and gives commandments to his people. This is how I designed the world to be. This is what I'm calling you to be. He makes his expectations known. Um, the other gods really don't have speaking roles, and they don't expect that. Um, I mentioned last week, we do have a concept, though, among some of these other ancient cosmologies, the idea of bearing the image of a god. And who do you think, more often than not, the more powerful gods, who was the one that bore the image of those gods. It was the Pharaoh, the emperor, the king, the ones in power, the strong. The God of Israel is different. 
He's different, decidedly different. The God of Israel did not define himself by ruling over and exploiting the weak and the marginalized along the way. The God of Israel identified with the weak, the outsider, the sick, the poor. And the law that he gives is not just simply a list of do's and don'ts, but it's given to shape and mold a people to reflect this God and his care for those on the margins that the nations would look to the rules and statutes and their care for the vulnerable and say, who is like their God? Such wisdom, such mercy. What's sometimes called the quartet of the vulnerable in the Hebrew scriptures, the widows, orphans, immigrants, and the poor. And, the, and, and what we see in Hebrew scriptures, the judgment of Israel was not how well they performed sacrifices or festivals, nor was it economic or military success. Israel was judged according to both personal righteousness and social righteousness. They're mishpat, right? And I'm checking. Okay. None of you, el- nobody else pay attention to that. I'm checking that I get my Hebrew right. Their justness in how they cared for these groups. Why were they judged by that? Because this is how they reflected their God, the God of Israel. Not a God who champions the causes of kings and rulers, but a God who is constantly introduced over and over again as the defender of the vulnerable. Deuteronomy 10, the Lord your God defends the cause, the mishpat, of the fatherless and the widow and loves the immigrant giving him food and clothing. Other gods weren't identified like that. Mishpat is more action-oriented to do justice, and then to love kindness is the word hesed. So what we, what we see here is to do justice, this is the command that Micah gives, to do justice out of the motivation of mercy and loving kindness. The great summary that, that Micah gives to every God-fearer of what they're called to. So let's go a little bit further on this. We're gonna add one more Hebrew word to the mix that is often combined with the word mishpat. And I want you all to know, if I'm not right here, I will be corrected. And I'll let you know. But I think, I think we're okay. Uh, we often translate this word as righteous or righteousness, to make right, or more specifically, to be in right relationship. And Tim Keller, in his book, Generous Justice, which I would highly, highly recommend, we may, I'd highly recommend it. Uh, let me read this excerpt from his book. And by the way, a lot of this is coming from Keller. Uh, other sources, but also him. This is what he says. We must have a strong concern for the poor, but there's more, than, more to the biblical idea of justice than that. We get more insight when we consider a second Hebrew word that can be translated as being just, though it's usually translated as being righteous. Tzedek, which uh, it often refers to a life of right relationships. Uh, Alec Mocher, who's a Bible scholar, defines righteousness as those right with God and therefore committed to putting right all other relationships in in life. This means then that biblical righteousness is inevitably social because it is about relationships. When most modern people see the word righteousness in the Bible, they tend to think of it in terms of private morality, such as sexual chastity, diligence in prayer, Bible study. But in the Bible, tzedek refers to the day-to-day living in which a person conducts all relationships, family, society, with fairness, generosity, and equity. 
So it's not surprising then that to discover tzedek and mishpat are brought together scores of times in the Bible, these two words roughly correspond to what some have called primary and rectifying justice. Rectifying justice is mishpat. This is important. It means punishing wrongdoers and then caring for victims of unjust treatment. Primary justice is behavior that, if it was prevalent in the world, would render rectifying justice unnecessary because everyone would be living in right relationships to everyone else. Therefore, though tzedek is primarily about being in right relationship with God, the righteous life that results is profoundly social. Therefore, I'm going to break this down a little bit, followers of Jesus are to be profound doers of social justice. Let me say that again. Followers of Jesus are to be profound doers of social justice. Now, if that term makes you nervous, there's a reason why. If you hear that and you go, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Certain pundits on certain TV shows told me that I should not use that term. Let me tell you why, all right? There was a divide in early Protestant history in America, the late 19th century, uh, where what was being explained as the gospel was simply salvation of souls without doing anything to actually mitigate the conditions of poverty and social systems that were in place that, would actually, uh, that actually caused these oppressive treatment. And so what I believe in an overreaction to that, uh, there were theologians that moved away from personal salvation at all, making right before God, and that Jesus was more of a revolutionary than, than a Messiah or a savior, and he just called for the undoing of these social systems and unrighteousness. So there's this split. You can follow them down political lines. You can follow them down church, the, the conservative and progressive church lines. It is what I believe a false dichotomy, and it continues to thrive today in the, in the debate between conservative and mainline Christian denominations. What I think is amazing and beautiful is that the historical black church in America has done remarkably well at holding on to both of these. Another book, Compassion and Conviction and Campaign, highly recommend. I'll give lots of stuff at the end on, on various things. And then I'll email out a whole bunch more. All right? Um, the call for follower of Jesus to know Jesus as Savior, reconciling us to a right relationship with God, and therefore pushing us into the social world to make things right for human flourishing. Okay? Yes, this looks different in a theonomy versus a democracy. You'd be happy to know that the Bible doesn't have a concept really of democracy at this point. Okay? I'll touch a little bit on that later. So, friends, refuge, followers of Jesus, this puts me at odds with a whole lot of people. You'd be amazed because these are fighting lines. Um. I believe we are called to preach a message of right relationship with God that is restored and reconciled by the completed work of Jesus who fulfilled the law. And I believe we are called to social justice as the outflow of this right relationship with God toward putting right relationship within systems in the world where the poor and vulnerable are not to be exploited but defended. Where, where oppressive systems or laws within those systems, uh, with, whenever it is within our ability to do so. 
and they, that they are opposed and made right, or as right as they can be in this world. Job covers this in the book of Job of what we're told when we don't do this. He actually doesn't say it's not a good idea. He actually says it is unrighteous. It is sinful when we don't do this. Listen to the words of Job in Job 31. If I've denied justice, mishpat, to my men servants and maidservants when they had a grievance against me, what will I do when God confronts me? If I have denied the desires of the poor or let the eyes of the widow grow weary, if I have kept my bread to myself, not sharing it with the fatherless, but from my youth I reared him as would a father, and from my birth I guided the widow, if I have seen anyone perishing for lack of clothing or a needy man without a garment and his heart did not bless me for warming him with the fleece of, uh, from my sheep, if I have raised my hand against the fatherless, knowing that I have influence in the court, then let my arm fall off my shoulder, let it be broken off at the joint. These also would be sins to be judged. I would have been unfaithful to God on high. All right. Deep breath. Everybody still with me? A little bit more, and then, and then we're going to blaze through the New Testament. I'm going to make you feel bad, then feel really good. All right. Two things as we bring this into our modern context. First, these definitions, if you caught them, primary and rectifying justice. We are often not on the same page when we use the terms justice, that term justice. We are often thinking in different realms, and I think they fall down these lines. Justice has to do with right behavior and punishing wrongdoers, right? Justice also has to do with compensation and care for those who have been wronged, right? And it also means a culture where laws are applied with equity and are not burdensome to the vulnerable, producing equal opportunity. Not always equal outcome, but equal opportunity. One theologian said, injustice is never equally applied. Some receive harsher judgments for the same crime. Some are victimized and do not receive what is just. They receive less, little compensation as victims. And when those two things combine, Generationally, this can produce far fewer opportunities. The opportunities become wider and wider. So, you can pick out your political leanings on which application of justice you view. But know that when we talk about justice, when we talk about biblical justice, it is all of these. These are all combined and more. Biblical justice is about warning against and punishing wrongdoing. It is about righting the wrongs and care for the vulnerable and the victimized. And it is about overall the primary justice making or more often in our world removing laws that allow exploitation to happen. That's the first thing. Second thing. Scripture, mostly through the prophets, speaks to the complex causes of poverty as well. 
It does us no good, Christian, to make blanket statements on the cause of poverty. It does us no good to make blanket statements on the causes of poverty. They are complex, and they have always been complex. The prophets talk about three, these areas, three different areas. Uh, there is oppression, judicial systems that favor the wealthy, punish the poor. That's why God hates bribes. If you notice how often in the Hebrew Scriptures God talks about hating bribes, it's because the wealthy can circumvent justice by paying people off or by contributing to political causes. Um, systems that favor the wealthy and punish the poor, excessively low wages, predatory lending practices, all of those flow in together. Then there are also the potential of natural disasters, famines, floods, fire, uh, injury that keeps, keeps a person or a people in poverty. Then there is also personal responsibility and moral, failure, moral failures regarding money. And all of these often weave and flow together. The problems are complex and they're nuanced. I mentioned this before, I think it was last year. Did you know, this is good news, did you know, and if you were here, you know, childhood poverty since 1993 in America has dropped by 59%. This was up to 2019, but I think the research shows that it's still going. It has dropped by 59%, which is remarkable. The two main changes that happened to drop childhood poverty were a wider but more stringent safety net, okay? Which means it is both more generous and has more accountability. Now, you may think, why haven't we heard about this? Why isn't this on the front? Why aren't, why aren't politicians like championing this and getting it out and going, yeah, we did it, we did it. We find like we actually did something good. Here's why. Because both sides lost. Neither side got what they wanted. It was a Democratic president and a Republican Congress that both widened the safety net, but also put more restrictions in place. Neither side got what they wanted, so neither side walked away happy. And it has worked beautifully. to the tune of a historically radical drop in childhood poverty that we should celebrate. We have to know that the causes of poverty have always been complex. The ways to address poverty then can't just be simplistic, broad sweeping generalizations. It's not just to throw money at it, nor can we just say, well, you just need to be responsible, it's not my problem. Follower of Jesus, it is always our problem. They have to be robust, and they can't be simply relegated to a political party affiliation or carried out by the state or by personal responsibility. So, let's get to the New Testament, all right? Matthew uh, 25, 37 through 40. And, uh, all right, this will go a little quicker. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you a drink? When did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. This passage is at the end of Matthew. It's Matthew 25. And right after this, Matthew, uh, Jesus goes to be anointed at Bethany, and then he is arrested and taken to trial. Betrayed, arrested, and taken to trial. And he's betrayed for, wait for it, money, of course. In the ancient writings, when you wanted to emphasize something, you put it toward the end. 
Hebrew writing, you put it in the middle, but ancient writings in this, in this contemporary, uh, in Jesus' day, you would put what, something you wanted to emphasize at the end. So this is about final judgment. Jesus gives this illustration about the final judgment, when you stand in the final judgment. And he says this, whatever you have done to the least of these, you have done to me. And consequently, what he says right before this, what you have refused to the least of these, you have refused me. A few things here. Once again, the God of the universe incarnate as human is not identifying as an emperor or a king or a high priest or wealthy or powerful. And consequently, our right relationship with Jesus is not identified by our relationship to earthly success. Jesus says here, these are the words of Jesus, the way you identify with those in poverty, the way you identify with the vulnerable, demonstrates your true relationship with me. Here again, we think of the word righteous in the New Testament. We often think of prayer, study, sexual fidelity, free from addictions, that type of thing. And those things are there, all right? We've been in the Sermon on the Mount. They're there. Uh, but we do not, do we think also of our relationship with money or our relationship with power or success? Or do we think of our relationship with the vulnerable and the marginalized, those who are exploited? Christian denominations divide here. One, we want to focus on these sins and never talk about these sins. The other side, we want to focus on social sins and never talk about private sins. And then we all, we all think the other is smug and unrighteous, self-righteous. And Jesus, I think, just sits in the middle. Ah, as the people of God, we got a good, long, strong tradition. Of, of messing up here. Jesus doesn't say that to do this, this is how you get saved. He's telling us, if you want to know the evidence of your salvation, look at how you treat and feed and care for the poor and the vulnerable and the outsider. The poor are not a, pro it's not a problem to be solved. It is a people to love. Now, if you're like me, and if, you, if you've been here long enough, you've at least been somewhat infected by me. You may go, okay, but, even here, right? Even we're down in the depths and you're like, whoa, 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 hold on though. Yes, there is, we are, in a, we are in a culture right now where it is beneficial and culturally virtuous to care about the poor. Uh, we've been talking about kingdoms. It is possible to do good work, righteous work, and be more about our own kingdoms. Anytime you take a picture of that big tip you left and post it on Instagram, that is less about your generosity and it's more about your ego. Right? Guys, check out this awesome thing I did for this guy, this homeless guy. You know, that's more about me. I mean, can be. Not every time. Sometimes it's just it's drawing attention to the problem. Politicians exploit the poor for, vote, for votes. People use their service for personal fame. Um, and if we're not careful, we can use people as props to show how good and caring we are. Luke 14, Jesus says this, 
When you give a dinner or a banquet, don't invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they can't repay you. You will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Now, Jesus is not saying here, don't invite your friends and family over for dinner. Right? That's not what he's saying here. Same as he's not saying, hate your father and mother. He's saying, in, in, your, in the comparison of, my, of your love for me, it ought to look radically different of your love for others. It actually causes us to love them more. What Jesus is saying here, in, in this day, throwing banquets, these were ways to increase your social standing, networking ability, uh, when you get the big dogs to show up at your party. Right? That's the party to be at then. It helps you with networking. It helps you get your, the name out. Um, in a contemporary way of seeing this statement, it may look more like this. Do you spend or give as much money caring for the poor as you do on a vacation? Would you give as much money to the poor as you give to entertainment? As much time and attention to social injustices as to climbing the corporate ladder? Do the weak and the vulnerable in our world get as much attention as we give ourselves? And listen, don't think I'm sitting here going, I do that. Oh, I, I cringed writing this. Maybe here's another way to put it. And again, don't read more into this. Are we as concerned about laws and their effect on people in poverty as we are about laws that might affect my income? I'm a firm believer that more laws don't fix bad laws. Okay, so don't read more into that. Quick bullet points and then we're gonna move to application. I told you, you're doing great. Do we need to stretch? Everybody still, you still with me? I'm thankful that nobody, at least I haven't seen anybody get up and walk out. If you, if you did, you at least waited until I was turned the other way, so I'm thankful for that. Quick bullet points and we're going to move to the application. Here and in many places, Jesus shows the, actu the, absolutely, the absolute impossibility of fully carrying out the law. It is impossible. It is an incredibly high standard, and it's impossible. And we are in desperate need of grace, and this grace is what we have in the person and the completed work of Jesus. Our biggest enemy is self-justification. Our biggest enemy is, we go, well, Jesus, yeah, but, here's, but let me tell you why I'm better than that and why I'm not as bad as those people. We are never called to need Jesus less. However, we have radical grace, but it is not given for us to ignore the law, but to pursue it. To pursue loving God with as much of our heart, soul, and strength as we possibly can, and loving our neighbor as much as we love ourselves. And as a quick, a quick application when illustrating who that neighbor is, Jesus tells the story of the hated Samaritan caring for the physical and financial needs of a beaten up Jewish man as the primary example of what it looks like to love our neighbors. 
The reason I say that is because sometimes it's suggested that Christians are just called to care for other Christians. And yes, there's some logic to that. We care for our family first, biological family, and then we care for fellow believers, and then we are also called to be radically generous to all the world, even those who may be against us. Another bullet point. The end goal and the hope of giving is restoration. It is not to create a debilitating dependence on others, but to be restored to the creation order of labor, to be able to work and contribute and multiply whenever that might be possible. That is the end goal of a a form of self-reliance, not like in the spiritual bad self-reliance, but like in the production, like I am participating in society, okay? Um, I believe that is the hope and the end goal, and I think we see that in the Hebrew Scriptures. I think we see that in the New Testament. Uh, There's a lot to get into there. However, however, the motive of giving is out of joy and love. It is not to fix people, and it is not to, I will give as long as you do what I tell you to do. Our first Christmas store that we ever had uh, at Refuge, a few guys went out um, where we provide gifts for the community that can come in and they can purchase for very, very cheap prices. Some guys went out and they bought a PlayStation for, uh, for one of the families in need. And I remember my internal reaction was, my kids don't even have a PlayStation. Like, that seems excessive. It seems a bit lavish for a family in need. What about practical stuff? And as soon as that hit my mouth, yes, I'm sure I said it, it came out and hit me square in the face. And what I heard from a loving and gracious God, oh, oh you, you, the desperate recipient of the grace and mercy of Jesus, shall we talk about the lavishness of what you have received? You wanna talk about that? Yes, sir, I get it. We give out of joy and love, not just if someone does what we require of them. Giving is the testimony of our love for Jesus himself. Last thing, and then application. <laughs> we're gonna have to send, uh, we're, we're gonna send out the uh, application stuff. Um, and uh, there's lots of books to, to read, uh, phenomenal, helpful books. Here's the last thing. Deuteronomy 15, Moses is giving the law. Um, regarding the year of sabbatical. Uh, And this is the beautiful presentation of the law uh, given by Moses, the chances to start again, where debts are forgiven, where property can eventually be restored. He ends with the the year of Jubilee. And these laws are designed to war against crippling generational poverty among the people of God and any foreigner that would dwell among them. Moses says in verse four, there will be no no poor among you. And the vision that God gives to his people in establishing these laws, yes, there will be natural disasters. There will be famines. There will be things that you have no control over. And there will be bad personal decisions. Because he says, when you give, don't give grudgingly, regardless of what, how they got there. Just give. But he said, there will be personal bad budgeting. But the oppressive piece, the exploitation, the hoarding of wealth, of funds and resources, shall not be among my people. There will be judgment. And the laws are meant to war directly against oppression. 
Spoiler alert. It does happen. Verse 7, then Moses says, if anyone should become poor, don't harden your heart toward them. And again, he doesn't mention why. Just don't harden your heart. But open your hand and give to meet their needs. Know that the Sabbath year will be coming. Their debts will be forgiven. They will start again. But as for you. So there's the command not to have any poor among you. And then there's the command what to do when there are poor among you. The practice of the early church. Jesus is raised from the dead. And uh, the Holy Spirit comes down at Pentecost. And... uh, The practice of the early church was amazing. Now, spoiler alert, (laughs) it goes bad, right? I mean, look around us. Uh, They had problems. It didn't take long for divisions to set in and to form committees on why they didn't like this and that and whatever. Uh, We have, again, a long, strong tradition as the people of God of being a messed up bunch. But when the Holy Spirit pours himself out in Jerusalem, the apostles are gathered. 3,000 have just been added to the church. So they're not, they're not like all living under one roof. They are, they are, there's a, a, a whole community of people. In Acts 2.42, listen to this. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship and the breaking of bread and the prayers. Awe came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and they had all things in common and they were selling their possessions and their belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God, having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. What we see in the early church is this beautiful fulfillment of the commands of Deuteronomy 15, giving so that none had need, Glad and generous hearts. The New Testament church, they would give and they would have deacons that would oversee the giving and then they would distribute the funds to any as had need. I want to tell you, Refuge, that there's a chunk of your tithes that go to people in need. They go to pay electric bills. They go to help with grocery bills. They go to help pay food. They help pay rent. And I want to tell you how much of a joy it is. First of all, uh, Sally Coleman is an absolute saint who oversees that, takes phone calls. Yet, okay, yes, you are. Um, uh, we also work with St. Joachim and Anne that helps fight against homelessness and, keeps, and does an amazing job there. Um, but do you know how much of a joy it is to be able to tell somebody you've got a lot of stuff to worry about, but you don't have to worry about rent? because of the body of Christ. I know you got stuff to think about, but groceries, that, that doesn't need to be there. It's amazing. Church, when we are put in right relationship with God, the defender of the weak and the poor and the vulnerable, we come in, we come in as, as the poor in spirit, poverty of spirit. We are called by God to defend, to care for, I mean, to just even care about the weak and the poor, and the vulnerable. The only assignment I have for you this week, examine your heart. I know there's complexities. There's lots of things that that take root in here. Sometimes we want to just be right about poverty instead of actually doing anything. We want to be on the right side of history instead of like actually caring. 
or, or taking action. My only practice I have for you this week, examine your heart. Where in these areas uh, do you need to undo some things where we've gotten maybe politically affiliated rather than more Jesus-affiliated? Where we have, I don't know, where we've become hard, where we have overlooked. Um, the church is wretched and she is radiant. Uh, grace is abundant and the call in our lives is not only to deal with our personal junk but, but our social junk so let's do it well let me pray thank you Jesus <clears throat> that you have seen the spiritually weak and wrecked and, and impoverished and have had grace on, on me and I can see how often it, it is dangerous for me to have material possessions and want them more than I want you and hold them tighter. So help us to see you are the giver of all good things. The open hand to receive is the open hand to give generously. That you are a good and generous God and that your people would reflect that and become a blessing. Thank you for the work that the church has done. Thank you that largely the influence of a, of a world right now, a Western world that actually cares about the poor has a whole lot to do with you making yourself known through your bride. Help us to see where we need repentance. Help us to see where we need to let go of things. Help us to see uh, some pride maybe that we're holding on to where we can just give joyfully and generously, bearing witness to the king Give us guidance, comfort us, grant us grace and forgiveness in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. Building our identity in Christ for the sake of the world. That's the mission of Refuge Church. For more information, visit us online at seekrefuge.net.